0: let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your love and your grace, and your mercy. Lord, that you are just so good to us through the challenges and the victories of life. Lord, we thank you that you're, you're there and you, you, you carry us and you sustain us and you do that work in our hearts. And We pray that you just do more of that today, Lord, that you would be glorified through our simple gathering here today. So please have your way with us and guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The church in Thessalonica was established on Paul's second missionary journey. Um, it's described in Acts chapter 17 And Paul went to Thessalonica And then to Berea And then to Athens and to Corinth We know as we've talked about He was in Thessalonica for just three weeks And it's funny just to keep trying to get our heads around that He was in Thessalonica for three weeks I was telling somebody this yesterday um, And I actually this I, I don't I think the Lord I think the Lord showed this to me um. in terms of you ever th- think like uh, you ever been tempted to think something depends on you or like you know if it's bad it, if, it's a, if it happens bad it's your fault and if it happens good it's your it's, it's because you were so awesome yeah. right yeah. you ever think pastors go through that yeah. yes and so um Paul was in Thessalonica for three weeks, right? He was in Corinth for about, I think, a year and a half, right? As a result of his great outpouring of wisdom for three weeks into Thessalonica, we have the Thessalonian church. As a, as a result of Paul's great outpouring of wisdom in, the, in Corinth for a year and a half, we have the Corinthian church. Which church would you rather be a part of? The Thessalonian church, Right? If you recall, when we went through Corinthians, they had everything imaginable messed up with them, right? So Paul was there for a year and a half, poured into them, and you gotta wonder, like, maybe he should've just gone for three weeks and then left, right? And so, uh, anyway, that's good for me, so. Anyway, they're in Thessalonica for three weeks, they go to Berea, they go to Athens. At Athens, Paul separates from uh, Timothy and Silas, hangs out there by himself, Timothy and Silas go back to Thessalonica. Either Timothy or Timothy and Silas. The narrative is not real clear. But anyway, goes back to Thessalonica to see how they're doing because Paul was only there for three weeks, and then they meet back up in Corinth. Paul gets the report of how they're doing up in Thessalonica while he's at Corinth, and then from Corinth he writes this letter of first First Thessalonians, probably one of the first letters that Paul ever wrote. And so um, keep this in mind. He was there for three weeks. He taught him a lot of things, and yet, you know, there's still a lot of questions that remain, and Paul's kind of responding to some of those things here. And so, we pick it up in chapter 4. Finally, it says, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, the fact that he says finally is kind of a continuation, and I wanna, I'd like to go back to chapter 3, verse 12. It's a continuation of this. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Is that a great verse? Just in case one or more of you zoned out on that, I'm going to read it again. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he, who, God, may establish see the you get the idea of the of the the richness and the firmness and the security there that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints and so really i i harp on that a little bit because really that sort of sets the stage for what we're going to talk about today as we pick it up in chapter 4 and that is paul saying i want you guys to just like keep doing what you're doing, abound more and more, live holy and blameless, Uh, know that God is doing that work in you as you wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so we're going to transition a little bit today in picking up in verse 13 of chapter 4. He starts talking about uh, the second coming of Jesus, which is a lot, what was on a lot of their minds. Is it on your mind? Raise your hand if the second coming of Jesus is on your mind, like you think about it. Once a month or so. Good. Okay, so here you are. So we're gonna we're gonna read about it a little bit. But this is a follow-up from these verses in chapter three. And here's the thing I want us to uh, to notice a couple things there. No matter where we're at with the Lord, as individuals or as a body, we need to abound more and more. We need to abound more and more. We need to abound more and more. I'm convinced of this like never before. I'm convinced of this like never before. We, if there were ever a time where we need to make sure we're not distracted, make sure we're not derailed, make sure we've got, you know, razor focus, I believe it's now. And again, as I said earlier, I don't know if this is just my point in life or if it's the fact that this is 2022 or the fact that I'm coming up on my 60th birthday or, uh, or anything, right? I, I, I just, I don't know what it is, I, but I think there's just, there's, there's a, uh, you know, like uh, Esther was queen for such a time as this, right? I, I think we all are in a, For such a time as this point in human history. And I don't say that to be dramatic. Maybe it's just we need to be aware, right? We need to be aware. But we always need to abound more and more. We need to love one another. We need to be blameless in holiness. Really just so we can focus on what we need to be focused on. And that is Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And notice this also, here in the end of verse 1, it says, so you know how, for how you ought to, what? Walk and to please God. Let me just say this. The Christian life is a walk. Okay? Well, what does that mean? Well, you can, you know, you can take sort of metaphor words too far. Okay, I'll give you that. But let me just say what it's not. It's not a stand, necessarily. It's a walk. Now, we need to stand against the forces of evil, right? Ephesians chapter 6. We need to take our stand, and sometimes we need to do like this. But in general, our walk with the Lord, my point is, it's never stagnant. I would argue that you're never, you're always moving according to one of those two roads in Matthew chapter 7. You're always moving closer or farther in your fellowship with the Lord. Right, because our fellowship with the Lord, as we know, it's not—it's not just a religion; it's a relationship with the living, breathing Jesus Christ. Right? So, we have human relationships. Right? Anybody ever had a weird relationship? Come on, one of you seriously? Well, there's at least nine Murphys in the room. Okay. (laughs) So, we all have weird relationships that kind of, did they get weird overnight? Were we born into weird relationships? No, we were born into sin, which produced weird relationships. But, you know, relationships, my point is, are always getting sweeter or rottener all the time. And so our life with Jesus is a walk. It's not a fixed point. It's always a walk. And we need to walk in a way that pleases God. It's important to know that we don't try to please God to earn favor. But we want to please God. Can I convey to us today, we want to please the Lord. Well, why do I want to please the Lord? Are you kidding me? Because of the awareness of what he's done in our lives. We say, I'm having this trouble and that trouble. There are a lot of things that I come across, again, more and more, that I don't have a good answer for. Except that God loves you. God has a plan for your life. God orchestrated all eternity. He's dealt with this problem before. And everything's in order. And he's a lot smarter than we are. But we want to please him as a response to all that he's done for us. Not to try to win points with him or to earn favor. If I live a life squeaky clean, airtight, never do anything wrong, does he love me any more than he loves me if I do everything wrong and mess up horribly? He doesn't love me anymore. He can't love me anymore. You know, there's some things God can't do. He can't lie. He can't love me any more or any less, right? And so he wants, so we want to walk always, you know, in that fellowship with the Lord, and we want to walk and to please God. And so he goes on, verse 3, says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, If you're like me, you think, this seems a little out of context. Does this seem a little out of context? We're talking about bounding and love and more and more, and and we're talking about pleasing God, and, you know, we're talking about love one another, and then he throws in this, like, stay pure thing. Now, that's a good thing, right? Stay pure. But it feels at first glance like a little bit out of context. But I think it's a reminder, and again, I think of it like this. If I want to please God, if I want to be walking in a way that brings glory and honor to him, if I want to be walking in a way that I notice, as we talked about earlier, as I notice the needs of others and am sensitive to, to one another's needs, to pray for one another's needs, to, uh, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, if I'm going to do that, I can't be distracted. And there's... Sexual immorality is a huge distraction from being, from being right with God. Not only is it distracting in and of itself and, you know, derails us, but then we have guilt and we have baggage and we have just stuff. And it's not God's best for us. You know, the Greek culture where Thessalonica was... Many, say, many historians say it was worse than the Romans. And the Romans were famous for their sexual immorality. The Greeks were worse. There were uh, some of the descriptions I wouldn't, I wouldn't read out loud. Uh, but it was normal. Hear me? It was normal. Hear me? It was normal. Can I sound the alarm a little bit? About normal. Normal. Because normal is always defined by a culture. And normal follows the natural course of the normal narrative. And we need to not ask our que- our, ourselves what's normal. We need to ask what's biblical. Right? We don't ask what's normal. We ask what's biblical. Imagine, in the Greek culture, in that day and age... To think that, like, morality was defined by normal would just be, it would make us blush. Okay? And so, um, just keep this in mind. The word sanctification means to be set apart. Our physical relationship is to be set apart for marriage. Abstaining from immorality brings honor to the person and to God. He goes on, says that, verse 6, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but holiness. So again, when we act outside of God's call to purity, we defraud ourselves, we defraud others, and and God has called us to be holy, set apart from the world. Here's another thing I think we need to keep in mind just in terms of this topic, and then we'll move on. Our world needs to know that a life of sexual purity without all the baggage is a good thing. Our world needs to see that demonstrated. I believe our world is hungry to see that demonstrated. And so we need to be, and if they don't see it from Christians, where are they going to see it? So they need to see it modeled And they need to see That it's a good thing A life of a faithful Believer Is a good thing Now having said that Please 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 There's grace for anything There's grace for anything Raise your hand if you're perfect There's grace for anything there's grace for anything, and as we receive grace, we give grace, right? As God gives grace, so we need to keep that in mind. Verse eight: Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us His Holy Spirit. So, you know, uh, when we talk about these things, we're you know, and, and even as I read these things, right, I can say this isn't, this is, I'm just reading the Bible, right? I'm not laying down some harsh uh, standard of living that's based on my opinion. I'm just reading the Bible, right? And so if we come against that, we're really coming against God, who what? Has given us his Holy Spirit. Can I tell you about, uh, just before we leave this topic, whether it be sexual immorality or really anything, God has given us his Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16. It's one of my favorite verses. You've heard me read it before. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you what? Shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What's the secret to denying the flesh? Try real hard. Read Romans 7 sometime if you want to try real hard. Remember that section in Romans chapter 7? Paul says, you know what? I want to do what I don't do, and I don't do what I want to do, and I, I'm just all confused. I'm all tore up. Who can, who can rescue me from this wretched state that I'm in? Every time I want to do something right, I do something wrong. Every time I don't want to do something wrong, that's exactly what I do. You want to live like that? Have you ever tried to live like that? Anybody ever made a New Year's resolution and lived like that? All the time. And again, I won't go off on it, because I've done it before. Romans chapter 7 the to me it's 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 the chapter in the bible it's the chapter in the new testament of how not to live in your own strength i try i try i try i fail i fail i fail i try harder i try harder i try harder i fail more i fail more i fail more and frankly that's how many of us i'll tell you this i lived that way for a long time way too long Any math majors in here? What follows Romans chapter 7? So you get that by adding 7 plus 1. Romans 8. What's Romans 8 all about? The Holy Spirit. Oh, wait a minute. I thought the book of Acts was all about the Holy Spirit. You know, there's there's more references to capital S Spirit in Romans chapter 8 than in the entire book of Acts. Let that sink in. There's more references to the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 than in the entire book of Acts. What's interesting is, as you read Romans 8, you don't read about tongues, you don't read about miracles, you don't read about healings. Those are all great works of the Spirit. I'm not taking anything away from that. But to me, the greatest work of the Spirit is a lifelong, many decades-long walk with the Lord, faithful, denying the flesh for a few decades or for several decades. That's an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's described in Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 follows that, oh man, I just want to try harder, chapter 7, Right? That's all about the Holy Spirit. Paul says to the Thessalonians, therefore, he who rejects this, topic, teaching on purity, he who rejects this doesn't reject man, but he rejects God. And by, by the way, God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who we can say with Paul, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And for an elaboration on that, read Romans 7 and 8 in order. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Now, I sort of resonate with this a little bit, right? I feel like I could say, have you ever uh, heard me yell at you recently, about loving one another in brotherly love? Anybody ever heard me yell at you recently about that? No. No. I'm kind of with Paul on this. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you. For you are yourselves taught by God to love one another. I feel like that's demonstrated here. Right? Now, could we abound more and more in that? Yeah. Why? Because we can always abound more and more in that. We can always abound more and more in that. But I believe it's, it's a picture. So he, Paul here commends their love for one another. He comments that they're taught by God to love one another. It's not dependent upon me or anybody else here. It's, it's dependent upon God. Who, again, if we walk in the Spirit, then we will manifest the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And interestingly... He goes on, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But he says, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is, singular, love. And then in reality, those other eight descriptors are really descriptions of love. So in reality, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The person I'm talking about, you know, that's lived for decades and has walked faithfully with the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, what do you think comes out of their lives when they talk and when they breathe and when they live? Love. Right? Not bitterness. Love. And so uh, abounding more and more in love, that should be uh, who we are. He says concerning brotherly love, you guys are doing all right, but keep it up. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now this is kind of interesting as well. He's kind of making a little bit of a transition here as he goes into, chapter, into verse 13. But he says, you guys love one another? That's awesome. But we urge you to increase in that more and more. We also encourage you to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you. Now, interestingly, one of the things that was sort of a hallmark of the Thessalonian church was they thought Jesus was going to come back any time, right? Paul told him about the second coming of Christ. He's going to elaborate here on it. Honestly, some of the richest teaching in the Scripture about uh, the second coming is the remainder of 1 Thessalonians and into 2 Thessalonians. So we can look forward to that. But he was convinced, and they were convinced, that Jesus was going to come back, like, pretty soon. Now, is that relevant for us today? Do we think, perhaps, this is why I said earlier that Ezekiel, I was thinking Ezekiel, because we're going to hear about this in a couple, not this Wednesday, because this Wednesday we're going to hear about Jeremiah, right? But next Wednesday we're going to hear about Ezekiel, right? I bet, I just bet, that we'll hear something about the return of Jesus as we go through Ezekiel, right? So in my mind I was thinking about that, and uh, that's kind of fresh on our on our radar a little bit, right? Should it be? Yeah, for sure. Should it be so fresh on our radar that we all quit our jobs, hang out and say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. That's what they were doing. That's what the Thessalonians were doing, right? Now we don't do it like that. But we sometimes do it in our words and in our actions and in our decisions, right? And uh, so, you know, there's a a balance there, right? Could Jesus come back at any time? If you were living in 19, let's say, 42, we'll say in Europe, would you have thought, Oh, baby! Jesus coming back tomorrow, right? Well, then you missed that a little bit and so fast forward a few years, 1948 with the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, would you have said, "Oh baby, tomorrow." Right? Well, now you've got certain world events that look pretty not scary, because we're going to read the verse, last verse in this chapter, which says, comfort one another with these words. Not scary. That's another one of my points. Thanks for setting me up. Everything's either an affirmation or a setup, right? So that was a setup. So uh, there are lots of world events right now that we would say look pretty biblical, we should take comfort in those things. But let me just say, we don't, we don't take that information and say, yeah, whatever. I think Jesus coming back. That means I can kind of chill. Right? I don't have to worry about the next generation. I can chill. Right? I think we've seen that in the body of Christ uh, in the past, frankly. And so we want to not be guilty of that. And so Paul tells these guys, you know what? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. You're You're loving one another? That's awesome. Keep doing it more and more. Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands as we commanded you. You know, as we love one another, as we abound more and more, in our love toward one another. A lot of that's just being aware of the needs of the person in front of you, right? So often, you know, we, we go through this Christian life, we say, I wonder what the Lord's will is in my life, for my life, right? And then there's a need that's presented before you today. Well, maybe that's the, God's will for your life today. It may be just an awareness, you know, now we have to you know, not everything that comes our way is for us to fix, right? But just an awareness. Lord, what would you have for me to do today? Lord, what, what need would I be able to uh, be a part of today? And as we do that, we engage with one another. We're not busybodies. We're, we're doing our work. We're doing our job. And, um, and we're being diligent. And yet, we're also anticipating the return of Jesus. And if we work a job, and if we r- try to raise up the next generation, doesn't mean we have a lack of faith regarding the second coming of Jesus. Is that fair? That's the message that the Thessalonians needed to hear. Paul even goes on, and uh, we won't read it today, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, that's pretty firm right? Paul wanted him to work. Now, it didn't say if he can't work, he shouldn't eat. He says if he won't work, he shouldn't eat. So, there's, you know, some, obviously, you know, there's some allowances for that. But the point Paul's making is be diligent. Be diligent to, to uh, serve the Lord, and sometimes that means tangibly and, and all of that. That you may, verse 12, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So again, that you walk properly toward those who are outside. Again, as we look at events uh, in our day, that we're on this earth for such a time as this. Again, perhaps like never before, the world—have you noticed this? The world has an opinion of Christians. Is it all? And it's sometimes positive and sometimes not. And I think we need to be very, uh, we're not men pleasers right? But I think we're very aware that the world needs to know what the Christian life lived according to Scripture looks like. The world needs to know that that's a legitimate way of navigating through these, these years that we have here on earth. And So I think the world needs to know that we're not obnoxious. I think the world needs to know that we're not sitting around looking up in the air waiting for Jesus to come back and not doing anything else for the good of mankind or our neighbors or our families. I think the world needs to know that we're not perfect but we understand grace But we don't abuse grace. There's just a whole lot of pieces to this Christian life that I think the world would do well to know. And I'll tell you, I'm a little burdened that I don't think the world recognizes that. Now, to be fair, part of that's them. They don't want to see it sometimes. But I'm not sure we've represented Jesus well through history. And so what do we have today? We have an opportunity, right? A challenge is an opportunity. And so I believe we have a tremendous opportunity that we may walk properly toward those who are outside and that we may lack nothing. It's a great opportunity. Because we're all what? Last two weeks. We're all what? Ministers. What kind of ministers are we? Full-time ministers. So we're all in... Full-time ministry. Did you get that? If you weren't here the last two weeks, that's okay. There's grace for that too. But we, I think we made an emphatic point. Do we make an emphatic point the last two weeks? We are all, if we're Christians, we're in full-time ministry, right? Tomorrow, I'm going to go to work in my ministry that happens to be at an office downtown, right? Is it less ministry than what I'm doing right now? No, not unless I regard it as that, right? I could, t- I could it could be less ministry if I say, yeah, I'm just here making money and doing my thing and you're sick. Nah, too bad, so sad for you. I'm out of here, going home, having dinner in a couple hours right? I mean, if I do that, yeah, it's not a ministry, right? But if I go there with an attitude of a minister, recognizing that what I do or say and the interactions I may have might have significance that goes beyond what we see as the present need, then that's ministry. Now, somebody besides this church signs the check for what I will do tomorrow. To me, that's a relief of a burden on this church. Right? But it's no less ministry. I'll probably go off on that next week. So your friends that were not here the last two weeks or today, you can tell them that. I'll probably go off on full-time ministry next week. It's on my mind. So, so, We are all ministers, we're all full-time ministers, and as such, we need to walk properly toward those who are outside and that we may lack nothing. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you have sorrow as others who have no hope. This is where he starts to get into uh, the end times events. This is an interesting thing. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, I looked it up. There's a few things, there's a few times God, uh, Paul says this. You may or may not have, you may have noticed some of these before. Romans chapter 11, Paul says, Now I don't want you to be ignorant, basically concerning God's plan for Israel. God's long-term plan for Israel. And the context there is, I'll just give you the punchline, God's promises to Israel are God's promises to Israel. God didn't throw those promises out the window and then apply them to the church. That's a theological position, but anyway. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about God's plan for Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I don't want you to be ignorant regarding Moses and the Jews in the desert and a lot of the, the, what's called the typology and the pictures uh, that that gives us, of, of Old Testament events and people that give us uh, New Testament lessons. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about that. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Second Corinthians chapter 1, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about the suffering, about suffering in the Christian life, that the fact that Christians actually go through suffering. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about end times events. Now, you ever notice, is there something funny about those things that I just said? Uh, the role of Israel uh, in God's big picture, the role of the Old Testament typology, spiritual gifts, the role of suffering in the Christian life and end, ter- end times events. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those things. What do those things sort of have in common? There are things that the church tends to be ignorant about, right? Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those things, right? He didn't say, I don't want you to be ignorant that Jesus loves you. I don't want you to be ignorant about John 3.16. He didn't say that. He gave us a list of things he doesn't want us to be ignorant about. You know what I think we should do? I think we should learn about those things. Because Paul, and he's writing Scripture, so we can say God doesn't want us to be ignorant about these things. Is there ignorance about end times events? Is there confusion about end times events? Do I have all the right answers about end times events? Probably not. But we should work through them together. Is that fair? So I'm going to give you what the way I read it. Is that fair? Now, Acts chapter 17, says this. It says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians, which is interesting after right after Paul left Thessalonica. So we don't have any kind of letters to the Bereans, but the Bereans were even more noble than these guys. Why? Because they received what Paul said with all readiness, and they examined the Scripture daily to see if those things were true. So I'm going to tell you what I think about end times events, right? Your responsibility is between you and the Lord according to his word, right? So that's the disclaimer. So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. Now, the fallen asleep was kind of a New Testament term. Jesus kind of really coined it. You remember in John chapter 11, right? Jesus is away. Lazarus, his friend, dies, right? And Jesus hangs out. He doesn't exactly rush back to to Bethany. He hangs out, and he says uh, to his disciples, yeah, Lazarus is asleep. And one of his disciples says, oh, it's awesome. He's going to get all rested up and get better. Jesus says, chapter 11, verse 14, no, Lazarus is dead, right? So we have sort of, that's the, the, really the first mention in the scripture of, from Jesus equating death and just using the term sleep. Why did Jesus use that term sleep regarding the death of a believer? Because it's really more like sleep than it is death, right? And so um, that's kind of the, the picture that we see uh, played out. Death is something that we don't fully understand, okay, but we know, we know what we know from Scripture. We know that we have hope through death. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you have sorrow as others who have no hope. You know, I've done a few funerals. And I've done funerals of a believer, and I've done funerals of people that uh, nobody really knows, right? Like, mm, just don't know, right? And there's a sense of hopelessness there, honestly. You know, that's when we say things like, you know, we just sort of hope that he's in a better place we hope that his good outweighed his bad and I hear all kinds I hear all kinds of theology at those funerals that doesn't bring me a lot of hope right but I've done funerals of people that I know where they were at with the Lord and it's in its own sort of way it's a blast right some of the richest some of the richest times of me sharing the word have been at funerals. For me at least. I'm not I hope they bless the people. But for me, like, wow, that was a cool day. And there have been a handful of those funerals. I'll go home and I'll say, well, that was a cool day, right? I think of my own dad. That funeral was a great day. That was a great day. So, we have hope that others don't have. So, that's the reality. But in terms of this death idea, you know, for the Christian, death is probably best defined as the time when the body is separated from the consciousness, right? And the consciousness goes to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8 says to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Right? Some people talk about, there's a thing, you know, some people talk about soul sleep. Like you die, you're in the ground, your awareness is asleep, and you're there hanging out waiting for, you know, till Jesus comes back. And I'm not sure that that's really biblically uh, consistent. Right? Um, You know? To be absent with the body and to be present with the Lord. Remember when Stephen was being stoned, right? He looked up and he said, I see, the heaven, I see heaven and Jesus there saying, come on, right? His consciousness was, was, was going there, right? And so, um, anyway, for what it's worth, uh, we know that um, the God's in control of all this. We know that we have tremendous hope as Christians, hope that the world doesn't have. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do we believe that? Yes. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And so when Jesus returns, somehow he's going to bring with him the saints who have already died. So how does this play out? I love these verses just so straightforward as he marches us through this logic. He says, for, if, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Not by man's opinion, but by the word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now, some would say, some commentators say, the fact that Paul uses the word we here means he himself thought Jesus was going to come back before he came to a point of physical death. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain till the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So, those who sleep, those who have died, will precede those who are alive on the earth. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet of God. Will that be a great day? That'd be an awesome day. And the dead in Christ will rise first, he says. So, just simply marching through these verses, right? Right? He says that the dead in Christ, somehow, uh, maybe they'll be reunited with their their bodies. You know, Jesus had a physical body when he resurrected, right? But, you know, 1 Corinthians tells us there are terrestrial beings and celestial beings. You know, that body that Jesus had, you know, he could eat fish, right? He said, give me some fish. But he also, you know, sort of has some supernatural properties, and we probably don't fully understand it, probably don't necessarily need to. But somehow... Uh, the body will be reunited with the consciousness and the dead in Christ will rise first, he says. It'll be with a shout, with a trumpet of God. That'll be a beautiful thing. Then, verse 17, we who are alive and remain, and it's okay if we pray that that we are in this group, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus... We shall always be with the Lord. So we have some things here. Is the word rapture in the Bible? In the English Bible? No. But if you've had the guys come and knock on your door, right, you also know that the word trinity is not in the Bible, right? Anybody ever come knocked on your door and said, did you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible? I thought I'd get 100% on that one. Seriously? Raise your hand if you've, ha- if, hand if you've had somebody come to your door. I'm just curious now. And, say, and they, talk, they, they lead you in a discussion. And they say, by the way, did you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible? Wow. We've got to go back and do that one. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Is the Trinity in the Bible? Even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus was fully God. And so, basically their entry into that dialogue, to try to sp- frankly set you up, is to say, did you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible? Right? By the way, that's, what's that do to you, if you don't know that? Kind of makes you feel like you're on unsteady ground a little bit, doesn't it? Right? Read Hebrews chapter 1. If they ever do, read Hebrews chapter 1 to them. Okay? Just and in your own personal study, read Hebrews chapter 1. God the Father refers to Jesus Christ as God. That's the punchline. Hebrews chapter 1. But anyway, you'll grant me an extra five minutes this morning because I didn't think I'd have to explain that whole Trinity thing. Okay? So the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Neither is the word rapture unless you have a Latin Bible. The Greek word here for caught up is harpazo. And the Latin translation, it's in the Latin Vulgate Bible, the Latin tra- translation is rapturus. It means to be caught away, to be snatched away. Sometimes used in a military uh, context where, you know, the, the prisoners are snatched away. You remember when... Uh, when um, Acts chapter 8, uh, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember this? Ethiopian eunuch's coming by, reading Isaiah, not sure what he's reading. Philip explains it to him. He becomes a Christian. He gets, uh, he's, he gets saved. He says, hey, I need to be baptized. Okay, there's some water right there. He baptizes him, and then he comes up, and then what happens? Philip's gone, right? He was caught away or caught up. The word there is harpazo which we translate, which the Latin translated rapture. So just like the, wor- the word trinity is not in the Bible, but the concept trinity is very much in the Bible, I believe the word rapture is not in the English Bible. Kind of a culturally self-focused view that we have, right? right? Even though it's in the Latin Bible, that's another story. The word rapture is not in the Bible, but the concept is very much, I believe, in the Bible. And so, if we read it at face value, we read that Jesus comes in the air on the day of the rapture, is reunited, it comes with, somehow reunited with the bodies of the, uh, the consciousness and the bodies of the, those who have, those, those saints who have gone before us, those who are asleep, and then those of us who remain are caught up in the clouds. Jesus never touches foot on planet Earth at this point in time. Caught up with the clouds, and then we go back up into heaven, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. It's, uh, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just for a little elaboration. starting in verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And again, hopefully we've made the case. We shall not all physically die. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So, here we have a little bit, of, a little bit more detail that this is going to be in the twinkling of an eye. Boom. We'll all be changed. Those that have gone before us and us. Somehow. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ, the, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, so when this corruptible is put on incorruption, so we have some kind of celestial being at that point, and this mortal is put on immortality, then we shall be brought, and then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is all going to go down. I believe in what's called the rapture of the church. In the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up with Jesus and meet him in the air. Now, if you'll indulge me for just about... I know that was the second to the last verse, but I want to talk for just a a moment about when does this rapture happen? Because this is controversial in the body of Christ. And again, let me just say at the outset... Don't argue with anybody over this, all right? Don't argue with anybody over this. If, if I'm right, I'll know it, and they'll know it. If I'm wrong, I'll know it, and they'll know it, right? We'll all be in heaven together, right? And how, how much, how much, how much should we all be reminded that different denominations are going to be in heaven together, right? So, someone wants to argue with you about does the Trinity, is the Trinity a real thing? Yeah, argue with them about that, okay? Somebody wants to argue with you about the virgin birth? Argue with them about that. Somebody wants to argue about the infallibility of Scripture? Argue with them about that. Somebody wants to argue with you about... Can you take the Bible and stand on it as the foundational pillar of your life as it's written? Argue with them about that. Someone wants to argue with you about whether the rapture comes before or after the tribulation? Don't argue with them about that. Is that fair? Yeah. So that's just context. So Revelation describes a seven-year tribulation period when God pours out his wrath on the world. Now, when I think of wrath, I think of my wrath, right? Right? My wrath is, well, not mine. Somebody else. Your wrath is sort of emotional. It's a little out of control. It's unbridled, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's what we think of when we think of the word wrath. God's wrath, it's, it's actually a different uh, Greek word than human wrath. Okay. This is like God's punishment. It's deliberate, it's decisive, but it's real, and it's tribulation. Okay? We don't want to be on earth during this time. But if, if we are, and I'm wrong, that's okay, because God is the author and the finisher of our faith. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll read next week, verse 9, says, God did not appoint us to wrath. God did not appoint us to wrath. So if we see the tribulation as like, hey, there's going to be hard times on earth, well, then Jesus said, "In this world, you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world." Right Is there such thing as tribulation in this world? Yeah. We know it, right? But is, the, is the, the tribulation that we're talking about in revelation? Again, let me back up. Whenever we read prophecy, the foundation is, how did Jesus fulfill prophecy when He came the first time? Literal or allegory? Very literal. Very literal. And so we kind of stand on that a little bit, that there'll be a pretty literal fulfillment, right? I mean, there are obviously some metaphors in Scripture. But by and large, as much as we're able to, we interpret end times events literally. If you read Revelation chapter 6 through 18, which is a description of the tribulation, if you take that the least bit literally, we're not talking about, I'm having a hard day. Right? Right? We're talking about truly cataclysmic stuff. Unparalleled. We're not talking about, I'm having a bad day. We're talking about the wrath of God. And, and we'll read next week, God did not appoint us to wrath. So, we know also that the tribulation goes on for seven years, right? Midway through that tribulation... We see, and that tribulation period, by the way, if you you were here on Palm Sunday, we talked about the 70 weeks of Daniel. If you're into this, this is, I'll explain it if you're not, that's okay too. The 70th week of Daniel is that great tribulation, the last seven-year period where God deals with the Jewish people, okay, because he hasn't cast them off. So God deals with Jewish people, and he's going to pour out his wrath on an unbelieving world. But we know that halfway through that, spoken of by Daniel and referenced then by Jesus in the book of Matthew as the abomination of desolation, that happens midway through that seven-year period, right? Now, if I'm looking for the return of Jesus and the rapture of the church, Jesus says no man knows what? The day or the hour. No man knows the day or the hour. Do I know, will I be able to calculate when the end of the tribulation is? If the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, will I be able to calculate when that is? Yeah. It'll be three and a half years after the Antichrist goes into the temple, sets up the abomination of desolation, and demands to be worshipped. When that day happens, it'll be worldwide front page news. Okay? That will be a huge event in history. And you could take from that day three and a half years and that'll be the end of tribulation and Jesus will come back with his saints, I believe, and set up what's called the millennial kingdom or the kingdom age where he will reign with us for a thousand years prior to the great white throne judgment, heaven and hell and eternity. Okay? Everybody with me so far? We'll get to all that other stuff, you know, along the way. Nate will clear it up Wednesday night after next. But for our purposes, we've got a rapture and we've got a tribulation. Okay? Jesus says nobody knows the, ma- the day or the hour. I believe he's referring to the tribulation because, I'm sorry, the rapture. Prior to the tribulation. Why? Because it could happen any moment. Right? You, there's, there's one of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He could come back any day, right? If I believed in a post-tribulation rapture, then I know once these uh, tribulation events happen and all that, I can set the clock for, you know, it's going to be a seven-year period, and at the end of that, Jesus is going to come back. But if no man knows the day or the hour, then no man knows the day of the pre-tribulation rapture. Interestingly, there are two pictures in the Bible where God has poured out his wrath. One is the flood. The other is Sodom Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened prior to the flood with the believers in the world? All eight of them. They were taken out into an ark, right? Before the flood, Before the, if you will, tribulation of the flood? Yes. Yes. What happened to Lot prior to the tribulation that was poured out on Sodom? He was taken out, right? Does Jesus give us any elaboration on this? Look at Matthew chapter 24, and then we'll wrap up. Starting in verse 36. Jesus himself says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So I believe this has to refer to the rapture of the church. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the son of man. For as in the days of Noah before as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not know the flood came until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the son of man. You get that? Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. So you see this? If we said the rapture of the church comes after the tribulation, is that seven-year tribulation going to be like the days of Noah, where everybody's chilling, eating and drinking, uh, getting distracted and carrying on, giving in marriage? Is that going to happen during the tribulation? No. No. Is that kind of a description of our lives now? Eating and drinking, giving in marriage, hanging out, reading the news, having fun, playing golf. Is that, is that now? Yeah. That's now. That's not the tribulation. And, it, and so as it'll be in the days of Noah, people are going to be doing that. And then, right, two guys are going to be in a field. One's going to be gone in the twinkling of an eye, and the other's going to be left saying, huh, that was weird. Two women will be grinding at the wheel, or the uh, however he said it. Grinding wheat. Grinding grain. One's going to be gone in the twinkling of an eye. The other's going to say, huh, that was weird. Right? Can you imagine how many people on earth are going to be scrambling to dig up their old Bible that their grandma gave them? That's collecting dust in the closet. Praise the Lord for that. The Bible goes on further to, to explain those people. There's going to be a lot of those people that are going to get saved during the tribulation. We could pray for them. There'll be a lot of those people. So, all that to say, I think it's important that we look with great anticipation for the return of Jesus that could happen today. And we call it the rapture of the church. And we'd say, amen, praise the Lord, right? But we need to not look for it so longingly and so expectantly that we neglect our ministry on earth. That's the simple balance, right? And then the other piece, just to to close out, do you ever notice sometimes when people talk about end times events, they're trying to get an effect Trying to get a reaction out of us. You ever notice this? You know it's coming. You know it's coming. You know, in Ezekiel thirty eight talks about Rosh. That means Russia. Whoa, that's relevant. It's coming. And you feel like there should be like building music with a kettle drum in the background. bum, 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 bum. Right? And we should all be like freaked out. Right? That is the wrong reaction. Let me tell you another wrong reaction. Come, Lord Jesus, bring it on. I don't care about Aunt Betty who doesn't know you. Too bad, so sad for her. That's wrong. Right? I heard a guy at, one of the, at this conference we went to yesterday, one of the guys was sharing. He said, man, I want the rapture of the church so bad. I'm so ready. But I'm also so burdened for those people that won't be ready. Right? We should carry that burden a little bit. Right? But ultimately, I love how Paul closes this chapter. Therefore, and what's therefore? Therefore is based on everything we've just read. Comfort one another with these words. Don't scare one another with these words. Right? Don't lead one another into complacency and neglect of their ministry with these words. Simply comfort one another with these words. It's a great conclusion for this chapter. So, Jesus is coming back, right? So do we look for the tribulation? Do we look for the Antichrist? We look for Jesus. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Right? Because the return of Jesus happens, again, I believe, before the tribulation. Antichrist rises to power during the tribulation. Mark of the beast is during the tribulation. All these end times things that we tend to get freaked out about are during the tribulation. What happens before the tribulation? The rapture. Jesus comes back. So am I worried, really, if, you know, uh, over the last year, you know, there was some discussion about, well, that COVID vaccine, that's the mark of the beast. Right? Or maybe it's not the mark of the beast, but maybe they're just kind of setting you up to... Get you all lined up to, you know, comply for the mark of the beast. Is that possible? I suppose. Is that relevant to us who are looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Not for us personally, right? We should be concerned about our world. We should be concerned about the world that we'll leave behind in the rapture of the church. We should be concerned about the social narrative that's going on. All of those things for sure, right? But I'm looking for Jesus. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm not looking for the mark of the beast. I'm not looking for whether or not microchips are bad or not. I'm looking for Jesus. And I think we need to be, I I think our, our dialogue and our focus needs to be, we're looking for Jesus. Jesus comes first. We're looking for him. And we keep our eyes fixed on him. Our dialogue is all about him. We want to share him with as many people as we can prior to his return. And that's our ministry. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are coming. That as John wrote in Revelation, we can say, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, Lord, we desire to meet you. We look forward to meeting you in a fresh way. We look forward to that day in the twinkling of an eye that we'll be out of here. But Lord, we do long for the problems that would be here, the people that we love, And so, Lord, it is a a bit of a mixed emotion for us. Lord, help us to be aware of what you have for us day by day, of the ministries that you've called us to, in the workplace and in the home, in the body of Christ, wherever you take us, Lord. As we engage in ministry, help us to do it with a ministry mindset. Knowing that as we navigate this earth, as we navigate our jobs, as we navigate our homes, we are carrying out the ministry you've called us to. So Lord, help us to be diligent to that as we eagerly await your return. Help us to live that way this week, Lord. And we'll give you all the praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.